due to technical problems, the tape of the lesson that was taught at 9.45 on June 10th did not get recorded. So the following is, a, is the lesson as it was taught the following day. As we go to prayer, to begin this lesson, I would like to read from Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Our Father, we are grateful that this is true, that you are the only God, and that you have chosen us to be your children. We thank you for this time that we can spend in your word, and we pray that your word will speak to us and open our eyes and our hearts to truth that will enable us to serve you, even as you enabled David so long ago to serve you. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we trust you that as we look at this passage, your spirit will be our teacher. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I'd like to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and begin reading at verse 17. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Verse 18, But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel the Meholathite for a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul reported to him according to the words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the day, days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down two hundred men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. 
Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. Because of David's popularity, Saul decided that he had better offer to fulfill his promised reward for the slayer of Goliath. We remember that back in the 17th chapter, as we read the account of David's slaying of Goliath, that when David first showed up at the camp in verse 25 of chapter 17, we read that the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, that is, tax-free in Israel. Thus, Saul felt that he had better offer to David his elder daughter Merib in marriage in order to fulfill the promise which he had made so publicly there at the battlefield against Goliath. On the surface, it appears that all David had to do in exchange was to serve Saul as a valiant leader of his armies. To make it sound totally legitimate, Saul referred to the battles he was to fight as Yahweh's battles. However, his real motive is exposed in the last portion of verse 17, where we read, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Back in his right mind, Saul realized that it would not be to his advantage to be directly responsible for the death of someone so highly esteemed. The backlash would probably cost him his throne and possibly even his life. However, if David were killed while fighting the Philistines, Saul could accomplish his purpose without incurring any blame. David would be greatly mourned, but Saul would appear totally guiltless. Commentators differ as to the meaning behind verse 18. On the surface, David appears to be saying that since he was a commoner from a family of relatively low social status, he was unworthy to become Saul's son-in-law. Maybe this was the customary protestation of unworthiness that Saul was supposed to overrule by insisting that uh, David accept Merib. If that were so, David failed to, uh, Saul, that is, failed to do his part and ended up marrying Merib to Adriel, who may have been from a more noble family, but about whom we only know, first of all, that his name meant, my God is my help. Great name, but other than that, he's very little known. Secondly, we know that he was a Maholothite. The word Maholothite basically means dancer. Probably it means that he came from the city of Abel Maholoth, which was located somewhere east of the Jordan and south of the Sea of Galilee. Thirdly, we discovered that he had five sons by Merab, all of whom died very tragically. And we'll read the account of that when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 21. Commentator Ronald Youngblood argues that David was implying in verse 18 that he had no interest in Merab, and therefore he was declining the offer of marriage. This idea is supported by the fact that David did later marry Saul's younger daughter, Michael. However, to turn down the king's daughter could have been viewed as an insult to the king. It seems a little unlikely. Commentator Eugene Merrill offers what I think is a more cogent argument. 
he says that David was saying that neither he nor his family could afford the bride price required for marrying a royal princess. If this was so, then Saul's reward, originally offered on the battlefield, had a catch to it. The victor, whoever defeated Goliath, had also to be able to afford the bride price. This idea is supposed is supported by Saul's seeming magnanimous offer, which he made later in the case of his daughter Michael, to waive the dowry, that is the bride price, in exchange for validation of killing 100 Philistines. But in this particular case, the case of Mirab, since David couldn't afford the bride price, Saul married Mirab to Adriel, who presumably could come up with the appropriate payment. Verse 20 is unique in all scripture. Other than the book of Song of Solomon, this is the only place in the Old Testament where we are explicitly told that a woman loves a man. We read that Saul's younger daughter, Michael, loved David. Now there are passages which, tells us about, which tell us about a man loving a woman, but this is the only place where it specifically says that a woman loved a man other than the Song of Solomon. Unfortunately, we're not told that the feeling here was reciprocal. Did David love Michael? We aren't told. However, Saul, Saul saw this as another favorable circumstance to eliminate David. Just how sly was Saul? First, he spoke directly to David by offering him a second opportunity to become his son-in-law, then to allay any suspicions and win him over to the idea, Saul ordered the men of the court to surreptitiously attempt to convince David that everyone, including King Saul himself, favored a marriage between David and Michael. As we shall see in verse 26, David did want to marry Michael, but truly felt that his poverty and low social status made such a marriage unattainable. When Saul's courtiers reported back to him what David's response had been, Saul kicked in the second part of his plan. The courtiers were told to return to David and tell him that his poverty would not be a problem since the king would magnanimously commute the bride price to only 100 Philistine foreskins. The reason Saul gave for his gracious offer was that vengeance on his enemies was worth more than money to him. Lack of circumcision was a sign of rejection of Yahweh, thus made the Philistines enemies of Israel, and since they were enemies of Israel, they of course were enemies of Saul. However, the writer of this passage, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reported the real reason, to see David slain in his attempt to kill 100 Philistines. Did Saul really care about 100 Philistines? Minimally. What he really cared about was another opportunity to see David killed. David accepted Saul's offer at face value. He couldn't come up with the cash for a bride price, but killing Philistines was right down David's alley. Saul must have set a time limit for the delivery of this bloody bride price, because we read at the end of verse 26 that before the days had expired, David set out to fulfill the king's request. That David did not set out on this task alone is clear in verse 27, 
where we read that David and his men killed the Philistines. Whether his men were a regiment in the army, which he commanded, or an unofficial group of young men who had been attracted to the charismatic hero, we cannot tell for sure. Whatever the case, David doubled Saul's request, bringing him the foreskins from 200 Philistines. Certainly Saul was disappointed that his effort to eliminate David had again failed. Oh, he was happy to receive 200 Philistine foreskins, but that was a very slight happiness compared to the f happiness he would have had if David had not returned. However, he had no choice but to agree to the marriage since the whole royal court, and undoubtedly many outside the court, knew of the agreement. Even spiritually bankrupt Saul recognized that the Lord was blessing and protecting David from all of Saul's efforts to destroy him. On top of that, David was now married to the royal princess who loved him and would not conspire with her father against him. This further elevated Saul's fear of David and produced a permanent enmity between them. As a kind of exclamation point to this chapter, verse 30 seems to highlight the fact that the more Saul feared and hated David, the more brilliantly and highly esteemed David became as a military commander. This inverse reciprocity is one of the great ironies of Scripture. To Saul, it must have seemed that the harder he tried to prevent the prophetic words of Samuel from coming to pass, the more everything he did was fulfilled, facilitated the fulfillment of that very prophecy. He, that is Saul, had unwittingly brought David into the royal court to soothe his depression. He had enabled David to win fame by defeating Goliath. He gave David further opportunity to gain acclaim by placing him in charge of his military units. He further enhanced David's legend by requiring him to kill 100 Philistines as a bride price. And finally, he brought David close to the throne by marrying him to his daughter, the royal princess. For his part, David conducted himself honorably. He sought the Lord's guidance and lived in obedience to that guidance. As a result, he acted wisely and brilliantly in every task he was assigned. He didn't badmouth the king, nor seek to head up a faction against him, like Absalom would later do in his attempt to destroy his father David. Even though Samuel had anointed him as Saul's successor, he made no move to bring about that succession. He twice demurred from the opportunity to become the king's son-in-law because he truly viewed himself as too lowly and unworthy. David's humility was in direct contrast to Saul's arrogance. When ordered to lead his regiment against the Philistines, he obeyed brilliantly with no suspicion that Saul was hoping for his demise. When Saul demanded 100 Philistine foreskins as a bride price, David accepted it as a welcome challenge, not entertaining the idea that Saul meant it for evil, even doubling what was asked of him. David's words 
attitudes and actions clearly illustrate what it means to live daily in the will and power of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, Saul dramatically exposes the tragedy and the frustration of a life controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Romans 8, we read these words, beginning at verse 12. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our Father, we're very grateful that David is a powerful example to us of one who lived in humility, of one who lived in obedience, of one who sought the face of God and lived accordingly, and you exalted him. The scripture teaches us that you will abase the proud and lift up the humble. And Father, we see in contrast this man Saul, who lived for himself, who sought his own uh, elevation, and yet he was thwarted at every point because he was fighting against God himself. If God be for us, who can be against us? Father, I pray that we will live each day recognizing that you are our strength and help, that the uh, gates of hell will not prevail, prevail against your church, of, of whom, of which we are a part. And Father, I pray that we will live as David lived, in faith, in humility, and in hope, walking faithfully before you and being used to minister to others and to touch those that are hurting and to advance the kingdom of God. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.